welcome to this AMR audio interview sponsored by ASME Applied Mechanics Reviews and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. I hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. It's an honor to present to you today's guest, Professor Thomas Hughes, Computational and Applied Mathematics Chair 3 in the Department of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin, an adjunct professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Rice University. Professor Hughes completed his Bachelor of Engineering and Master of Engineering in Mechanical Engineering at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York in 1965 and 1967. Following graduation, he worked for two years as a mechanical design engineer for Grumman Aircraft Engineering on Long Island, and then between 1967 and 1969 as a research and development engineer at General Dynamics in Groton, Connecticut. He went on to pursue a Master of Science in Mathematics and a PhD in Engineering Science from the University of California at Berkeley, completing both degrees in 1974. After two years at Berkeley as an assistant research engineer, he joined Caltech in the area of structural mechanics and quickly rose to associate professor in 1978. In 1980, Professor Hughes transferred to the Mechanical Engineering Department at Stanford University, where he was promoted to full professor in 1983. Between 1998 and his move to Texas in 2002, he held the Mary and Gordon Crary Family Professorship of Engineering at Stanford. Professor Hughes is a member of both the U.S. National Academy of Engineering and that of Science, and is a foreign member of the Royal Society of London. He holds fellow status with ASME, the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, the American Society for Civil Engineers, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and both the U.S. and International Associations for Computational Mechanics. His professional service record to a large number of organizations in theoretical, computational, and applied mechanics is possibly beyond comparison, having culminated in chairing the ASME Applied Mechanics Division Executive Committee and the U.S. National Committee on Theoretical Applied Mechanics, serving as editor of Computer Methods in Applied Mechanics and Engineering, as co-editor of the Encyclopedia of Computational Mechanics, and on the editorial boards of numerous other technical journals and book series. Professor Hughes' many honors include the Walter Huber Civil Engineering Research Prize and the von Karman Medal from ASCE, the Melville Wooster Reed Warner and Timoshenko Medals from ASME, the von Neumann Medal from the U.S. Association for Computational Mechanics, the Grant Prize from the Japan Society of Computational Engineering and Science, and the Humboldt Research Award for Senior Scientists from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. Perhaps as an ultimate honor in 2008, the annual ASME Special Achievement Award for Young Investigators in Applied Mechanics was renamed the Thomas J.R. Hughes Young Investigator Award. Similarly, in 2012, the Computational Fluid Mechanics Award of the United States Association of Computational Mechanics was renamed the Thomas J.R. Hughes Medal. In addition to an extraordinary commitment to professional service, Professor Hughes' international recognition is based on the impact his work has had on applied mechanics and scientific computing. With more than 60,000 citations to his more than 300 or so referee journal and conference publications, Professor Hughes is among the most widely cited authors in the disciplines of computational mechanics, engineering science, and applied mathematics. 
His books with Jerry Marston on fluid mechanics from 1976 and on the mathematical foundations of elasticity in 1983, and his textbook on the finite element method published in 1987, have served generations of applied and computational mechanicians and mathematicians. Professor Hughes has advised close to 40 PhD students to completion and provided research supervision to a very large number of visiting scholars and postdocs to the Institute for Computational Engineering and Sciences at Texas Austin. Outside of his academic pursuits, Professor Hughes also served as director of the Mark Analysis Research Corporation in 1989, as founder, president, and CEO of Centric Engineering Systems between 1990 and 1992, and chairman of the board of directors of this company until 1999. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in East Lansing, Michigan on June 18, 2014. Professor Hughes, I'm very appreciative of you taking the time, and I welcome you to this AMR audio interview. Thank you. So we, we had a moment to chat right before the interview, and mm -hmm. we will get back to the topic. But I want to start with the connection to industry and commercial enterprise, because mm -hmm. it seems to me to be, be an interesting one, not only because your work has had an influence mm -hmm. on, on you mm -hmm. know, the commercial sector, but because <clears throat> you've been directly involved. Well, you know, I started out uh, working in industry. I never had a plan early on to become an academic. It was one of these yeah. cases where one thing leads to another. But uh, I got very interested in research at General Dynamics Electric Boat, and then I really, really liked that uh -huh. right from the start. That suited my interest. I wasn't, uh, after, after spending some time doing design at uh, Grumman, I felt that uh, I was going to be locked into doing the same thing. And uh, that was just not my nature. Hmm. So uh, I decided I was... So what was the distinction between design and well, research at the time? Design was, you're building a product, mm -hmm. and uh, the product that I worked on was the Gulfstream 2, an executive jet. Mm -hmm. Gulfstream Industries was spun off a long time ago by, by Grumman, but it used to be part of Grumman. Mm -hmm. So the Gulfstream 1 was an executive jet that was a success, and the Gulfstream 2 was the jet that was a success. And I was part of the design team on that, and even though I was sort of a neophyte designer, I was able to contribute to that design. My assignment was to work on the uh, retraction linkage of the nose gear. And uh, the one nice thing about uh, engineering is that if you have something successful and you make a version 2, you, you have the version 1 to look at. And so even though uh, I was not an experienced professional designer, I had enough courage to go down to the shops and uh, interact with the people that actually built the plane. Because in those days, you know, they would be handed the blueprints, and then they would make changes. Modify it? Yeah, yeah. So that and it those actually changes worked. would not feed back upstairs to uh -huh. engineering. Oh, I see. And there was some hint of that. The structure of the building was very interesting. The airplane was built on the bottom floor. It was a huge building. There were the shops and the actual people that did the fabrication. And then upstairs was engineering. And engineers wore suits and ties. Mm. And downstairs they didn't. Nobody seemed to talk mm. to each other at all. Mm. But I had a lot of experience making things because I went to Brooklyn Technical High School, which is a sort of a tech and uh, math school. It used to be really hands-on with engineering as it was in like the 1950s and 60s, which was shops and making stuff and in addition to studying mathematics, of course. But I had experience with all of these things, you know, I knew how to work uh, 
I knew how to bend sheet metal. I had worked in foundry. I had done, uh, you know, worked in machine shops and yeah. made stuff. Yeah. So I was very comfortable to go down there and talk to them. And the people who worked at that level had bachelor's degrees? No, no, no. Not they, even, no, not at not all. Even. They would be high school graduates at most. In so that, was yeah, that they, part they, of the they distinction? Were, you know, they, they were people that, in, in those days, that you'd come to work for a company, maybe you'd be apprenticed and you'd learn how to run a lathe and do things like that and no. all. But they know how to do things. Yeah. And uh, they would mark up the drawings. Mm. So I went down there. I found the drawings that I had seen up in engineering. I, I, I found the as-built versions right. down there. <laughs> it was very important to me because yeah. I really got to uh, get a good rapport with these guys. And they told me exactly what the issues were. So I designed all of the changes into the Gulfstream 2 nose gear. I was actually in a work-study program. I was doing my master's at Pratt. At the same time, I was... Uh, working at Grumman. I so I, I worked at Grumman for like uh, from graduation until early in 1966. When I came back after my first period where I worked on the, the, the Gulfstream, uh, I met some of my old friends there, my boss and colleagues, and they said, well, everything was built that I had designed. Everything fit. It was in the plane and it was flying. Mm. The word was, we throw that stuff away, usually, when ah. we're training new designers. Oh, I you see, know. I see what so, so I felt good about yeah. that. But I mean, I, was get, I, I knew where to get the information, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I brought that in. And I think I do that with a lot of things. Yeah. I think I, I always go to the place where people don't seem comfortable to go to mm. find out what's going on. In the summer, when I came back, uh, I was assigned to work on something that ostensibly was completely different. It was a hydrofoil gunboat design. And they were in competition with Boeing to build a hydrofoil gunboat. What occurred, I was assigned to do the four-bar linkage of the, to retract the foils, mm -hmm. which it turned out from a design perspective was exactly the same problem as the as, nose, as the nose yeah, gear. Yeah. And I did it, and I was completely bored by the, uh -huh. the time I had finished I it. See. And I realized repetition was just not, not your thing. my thing. <laughs> Although I had heard that many times before. I remember a high school English teacher in my senior year said, don't do anything where you get bored. You're not good when you're bored. Uh -huh. and, and that has come back to me many, many times. But this was the classical example of it. And then when I was going back, back to school again for another semester, I met with the head of design and he was sort of, it was the debriefing, and he was telling me I had a career Doing waiting for linkages. me at, at Grumman. <laughs> I wouldn't have to learn anything new for the rest of my career. And I can remember my heart was oh, yeah. beating like I was going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and I was trying to smile and act like, oh, that's very that's nice. Wonderful, and, yes. and the only thoughts going through my mind, I'm never coming back to this uh, place again in my life. Yeah. It was just morbid fear at that uh, point. I did come back once, but I think it was to give a talk uh -huh. once, <laughs> many, many years so later. So that was the clear distinction between well, design and research. that was the thing. Mind, yeah. Research is, you know, every day is a new beginning. Yeah. And as soon as you've solved the problem, you've, if you've done it right, you've opened up many, many new questions. And uh, the nice thing about engineering research, too, is if you're not dreaming up your own problems, believe me, somebody's got them out there and they'll bring them to you. Mm -hmm. So... It's, uh, it's something that the stimulation is just continuous, and I, I, I really like that. So, so then you move on to General Dynamics and you well, get that what, research experience. I, I, yes, I, I, did a, I did a few interviews, a side story there that I won't go into, but it was because I was a poker player. But ah, well, the interview room should, yeah. was right next to the po where people played poker at, 
at uh, Pratt. Whenever I didn't get into a game, it was too crowded, I had to wait, I would do some interviews. And I did that three times. I got three job offers. <laughs> One was RCA in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh-huh. That's, they were doing satellites uh-huh. then. Uh-huh. Uh, the other was a shipbuilding firm. I don't even remember the name, but they were in Manhattan, one of the few engineering firms at the time in Manhattan. Uh, the other was General Dynamics Electric Boat, and that job was for research and development. And when I went there and interviewed, it was just fascinating what they were doing. They were computing, and they were computing large models of like submarines and things like that, and they were doing it all with beam and frame analogies. They didn't have an idea of how to really discretize a continuum or anything, but they had built uh, computer codes, and they were you know, solving problems for... 10,000 degrees of freedom at the time. They had mm. a Univac computer, and mm. it was it was quite impressive. Mm-hmm. And I had kind of heard about these kinds of techniques while I was doing my master's, because I had to do a, one, one course was sort of like a project, a master's project or something, sort of like a mini research project. And I remember reading about things like this, and I wrote some stuff up, but I really I didn't know what was going on, really. The opportunity was to learn that and mm. to work on that. So these models, you're saying that they were not discretized they, continuum mechanics models, but they were lumped parameter models it, it, yes, with large were. numbers of degrees of freedom. Yeah, at, mm-hmm. and at 10,000 degrees That's of freedom number, yeah. in the middle of the 1960s mm-hmm. was a big number, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, memory of these so-called supercomputers was really small, mm-hmm. you know. So, right. And, that was uh, the biggest challenge, one of the biggest yeah. challenges. Well, I, I, mean, I do even, have to interrupt for a moment and yeah. ask, were you as successful with the poker games then as the interviews? Uh, I was a good poker player, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that helped through for, the interviews, well, I would think, right? I, 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 mean, I yeah. never made a fortune okay. but, gambling. But you didn't have yeah. a, a, what is that, a give? Is that what they say? And you have a, a tell. You a have gift. a tell. That's, no, a tell, right? A There's, tell? A player has a tell, then you know that. Oh, uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of things about, about poker. One, yeah. of, one of the ones I like the best is if you enter a game and you don't know anybody, if in 20 minutes you don't know who the sucker is right, at the table, right. you're it. <laughs> every game has to be fueled by one person that's going to definitely lose everything. Mm-hmm. That's that's the amount of money that is course, in addition to the to other players who maybe are beating up on each right, other. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, general dynamics and and, and well, so and general the dynamics, and then I went there, and I, that was that was a big success right from the beginning. Yeah. I really everything I did there seemed to turn out very very well. But uh, these models that we were uh, using, uh, there was a lot of thought that was given to the discretization of the elastic properties. It means, in some ways, it's in retrospect very naive, but the, you know they would try to develop uh, like a shell structure or a plate structure, let's say, for, as an example, and they they make up a little cell mm-hmm. beams mm-hmm. and try to make it pass like what you might call a single cell or element test, mm-hmm. so it would behave like the plate would under you know, constant uh, bending moments mm-hmm. or something like this. And that would dictate the properties of the, the members. And it turned out you could only get a Poisson's ratio of 0.25, but okay. that's not far the, off steel, the, yeah, you know, true, yeah. and all, which they were making the ships out of. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is also, you know, if you look back in history when Cauchy did sort of a a molecular version of elasticity, you get a Poisson's ratio of point two. Yeah, so yeah. It, it had that, you know, because that connectivity is a geometry, yeah. geometry yeah. basically. Yeah. And if you try to do something crazy, you might get some negative areas, members, and stuff like okay. that, but the yeah. overall stiffness uh, would be okay. Uh-huh. Dynamics was a big issue, so they always wanted to know frequencies and mode shapes mm-hmm. of everything, piping systems, the, the overall structure. And when it came to assigning the masses, and I'll say assigning because that's the way it was right, done, right. there was no science to it at all. Yeah. They would just say, well, we're going to do, you know, 100 degrees of freedom for the eigenvalue problem, and 
So we're going, we need a hundred masses. So where do we put them? You know, they knew the weights that were like between all of the frames and things like that. Just lump it and put it someplace and hang it on a node, you know. And I said, you know, this is crazy. You know, there's got to be something more that can do with this. And this, uh, friend of mine turned around, his name is Hugh Lawson Davidson, and he said, there's something called the finite element method, and they have a consistent mass matrix. Yes. And I found the paper, yes. read it that night. Yes. Started Whose reading. paper was this? It was a paper by John Archer. He was in the AIAA journal, or maybe, no, maybe it was the ASCE structural journal. There were not many papers at that time. It was starting, but it was starting mostly in conferences. The, the coining of the name finite element, is that Archer also? Or is that, no, that, that, that was coined by a guy named Ray Clough. He's probably, of the earliest group, the most prominent of the U.S. pioneers. The bigger names, perhaps internationally, were Oleg Sienkiewicz and also John Ajiris, who was at London and Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. I started to read, and every night I was reading paper after paper, and finally I just was convinced this is the direction that we should be going in in the lab. I proposed to my boss that we develop an internal research and development project on the finite element method, and uh, he he went for it, and that consisted of uh, a young guy with a PhD who was my boss, who was kind of interested in this. He didn't know much about it either. He had done his PhD at NYU before NYU Engineering School disappeared, mm-hmm. and he was studying. He was actually studying dynamics. Uh, like uh, lump parameter dynamic systems and uh, in his thesis. So he had some understanding of time integrators and things like that. And actually, that was the big question when I interviewed. I'll tell you that story in a minute. But anyway, I I proposed that. Started the group. Within one year, we had a 57,000-line code, and we were doing everything in the whole place. Mm. And it became such a big thing that the analysis group, there was an analysis group there too that was quite large that was using the old lattice analogy mm-hmm. techniques uh, was very, very threatened by this. Oh, so it yeah. became a big internal competition. And the head of the lab, uh, he said he'd make a decision on this. And this is a battle royal. He made the decision on a Friday, as I recall. Okay. That Monday, uh, the leader of the analysis group decided to become to a finite yeah. element oh, person. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this presumably is, re- is relevant to what we also talked about right before we started the interview, which yeah. is this idea of a compelling story yeah. that establishes to those who are going to make the decision that costs money yeah. what to go with. What well, to yeah. What was that compelling story in your case? Do you remember? Was there, well, was there I, it, was, it, was, it was the fact that the one technique was a limited concept. It had been milked to the extent it could mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. It had no generality whatsoever. Right. But with finite elements, not only could we do structures, we could do fluids and yes. thermal, and we could do uh, piezoelectricity, which mm-hmm. is important for the uh, sonar. We're doing that all within a year. That was very important. And we could do dynamics. And what we did is the code we wrote was sort of a matrix and interpretive system on one hand. It had a lot of ability to manipulate matrices so you could construct models and, you know, cut them and do all different things. And also then it had all the finite element technology. And it was like a language. The reason I was selected to interview at General Dynamics Electric Boat is because the recruiter had a red flag for anybody that had studied out of a book called Dynamics of Structures by Hurdy and Rubenstein. 
This book came out at about that time, maybe 65 or so, and it was a brand new book that was Matrix Method of Structural Dynamics. It was of value to the people there because they were doing a lot of, did a lot of dynamic analysis, a lot of wave propagation associated with sonar and things like that, and, uh, and structural dynamics. That was the flag. And when I went there, I was interviewed in the research and the development side of this analysis area in the lab. And the guy who uh, was the head of the research side was named Mike Paxtis. It was very clear at the end of the day, after I had talked to everybody, uh, when he interviewed me, he was very, very concerned with, could I solve the equations of motion? He wrote them down, uh, matrix equations of motion. I had just started taking this course, you know. <laughs> I hadn't even cracked the book yet. Oh, wow. And he said, could you solve these equations? In a couple of weeks. I didn't say that. <laughs> you know, I was uh, 23. Said yes. I said yes. <laughs> Out of fear, I said yes. Uh-huh. And he said, that's great because nobody here can yeah. do this. Yeah, yeah, right, that's right, what right. we want. Like, Including good. him, maybe? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because yeah. if he knew how, he would want to say, well, how do you solve it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the way it would usually work. But uh, so I survived the, the moment of truth uh-huh. there. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from June 18th, 2014, with Thomas Hughes, Professor of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. I think it's important for engineers to work in industry. The experience I picked up there, I realize I have kind of another angle on things. I've touched reality, and, and I really feel like a lot of academics just never never touch reality. They all think they know what goes on in engineering, but they really don't. And they don't appreciate the skills, the intelligence, and ability of the people that do work in industry, especially the ones at a high level. There's some incredibly talented people out there, just brilliant, brilliant people. But they don't have the respect of, uh, let's say, the mm. academic research world because you know they think in different ways, mm. and they they're not locked in a room together and have to work out a problem together. Then they'd find out how, mm. how bright some people are. So I think all of that is important. Philosophically, I think if you attack a problem, the way I like to attack a problem is not okay. I've got a hammer and I'm going to make this problem a nail type thing. I want to know everything about that problem. I want to know what's being done everywhere all the different techniques, the technologies, I want to know everything. You know, I may try something first when I think I have an original idea, but at, at some point I want to be informed completely so I, I can at least criticize what I've done, yeah. you know. This, is, this would be the ideal in academia too. So, I mean, is this well, it is, but, but I mean, people read the literature. But, you know, yeah. I, I think, you know, if you look at academia today, there are so many people now that are trained in computational methods. Yeah. None of these people have ever really worked or sometimes have no interaction even with the software firms that sell products mm-hmm. in this area. And as a result, I think, you know, they live in kind of a magical dream world of their own making that really is not connected to reality. And I, I think, uh, at least I think I've had that experience and I, I see both sides. And and I would say like also in, in, you know, in computational mechanics, which is a big chunk of mechanics these days, is completely separated from design and manufacturing. And all the aspects of making things and developing products, all of the functions of an engineering Mm -hmm. firm that makes things, it's not just analysis. 
their major other functions. Mm -hmm. But the effectiveness of the overall organization is the efficiency with which they can do all of those things, the integration and unification of these things. That, to some extent, I think has gotten worse, at least now, before it might get better. Because what you see what happened, Finding Elements came along in the late 1960s, you know, Nastran was written, ANSYS started to around 1970, 72, something like that. The, the, the initial codes were starting to appear and all that became the big codes. That became the analysis paradigm. We're going to make a fine element model and solve a problem. But that has to inform design, has to inform manufacturing. Yeah. Now, what occurred later is you had CAD come along, CAM come along, but they were developed separately. They couldn't use the fine element model. It's not a precise geometry. It's not a geometry. It's a topology in a sense, you know. They developed their own representation. Everybody's got their own representation now. They're all different. You can't translate one to another. The biggest problems in the engineering product development cycle are the interfaces between the computer-based technologies. That's one of the themes of my current research. It reaches all the way back to my design experience in the beginning. We've got to develop foundational technologies that can manifest themselves appropriately in all the different areas. So you have a common, let's say, basis to design and analysis mm-hmm. and So the isogeometric analysis. The isogeometric yeah. is that idea. Yeah, now, right. the, the, the first focus of isogeometric analysis was to link CAD and analysis. Right. So the distinction between representations of surfaces and, and, and polynomial spline representations versus discretizing with triangular Finals. elements yeah, and yeah, tessellations. Yeah, the, the real estate picture where you carve up the map into triangles and right, plots and right. things like that. Obviously in the fine element domain you would remesh uh, your domain occasionally, you would have finer meshes in certain parts. Yeah. And that, that, that has to be accounted for presumably in this translation well, between that, the two the, fields. The, 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 well, see, the, the, the objective of isogeometric is yeah. to solve those problems, right. but to solve it within the geometry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you would want a geometry that would be, say, the CAD geometry. Right, to parameterize it. A, and you can reparameterize it, right. meaning remesh it, right. uh, but never changing the geometry. See, right. now with finite elements, when you remesh, you change the geometry. Uh-huh. And in fact, if you really want to remesh, you have to go back to CAD and find the geometry because you've already got a faceted approximation to sure. the real geometry. And if you refine that, you're not really getting a better approximation to the geometrical aspects mm-hmm. of the design. Uh-huh. So with, with isogeometric, all of this is done in one geometry, which is the exact geometry. Yeah. So the CAD geometry that you might utilize, yeah. let's say that's exact, yeah. and that is coarse because it only has to represent the geometry. But of course, you have to do refinement of that for analysis yeah. purposes. And, and you may do multiple analysis of the same configuration with different levels of refinement in yeah. different places for different things. But avoiding interpolations on top of interpolations sort of thing. You've got a geometry. Right. Why yes, not yes. use it? Yes, I understand. And, and, well, the question is, that, that's philosophically a nice idea. Well, yeah. How do you do it? How do you do it? Yeah. And, you know, do these functions have the right properties? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what does the file structure look like? Uh, you know, are things really glued together? Are they not? Yeah. These problems are being grappled with right now. And already, this thing has really taken off. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of interested people. But the real beneficiary would be industry. I mean, people in big places, like electric boat, those people say 80% of our time goes to translating CAD files into analysis models. 80%. It seems to me that, you know, if you look things at a higher level, like a VP of engineering or something, 
this is uh, this is an interesting development, and we'll pay and we'll pay dividends. And I think already it's it's starting to. It is being implemented in commercial software. Uh, LS Dyna has got isogeometric. They made a complete commitment to it. I was just at their international uh, users conference a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, John Hawkins, the president, has said, you know, we just believe it's going to revolutionize finite elements over the next 10 or so years, you know. So where's most of this development taking place? Uh, I mean, originally, it would have been, like, you know, your own work. And well, our shop, I mean, we started it. Yeah. And, and then uh, people kind of fan, fan out from there. It was like, but we, one of the nice things about ISIS is we have a lot of visitors. We yes. have a visitors program. Yes, I noticed this. And uh, some of those people uh, became very important. Uh, you mentioned Ellis Diner having decided to commit yeah, to this. Yeah. So they must be putting resources in house, or are they then seeking in house? In okay. house. But uh, they, have, they catch they have, up at some point. I mean, do you, how do you feel like this? We is, work uh, together with them. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I mean, I, I, I don't work with them in the sense I'm like a consultant or anything. I just help them. I collaborate with Dave Benson, and mm -hmm. Dave Benson, uh, he's probably the second main developer of Ellis Diner, even though he's a professor at ECSD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was uh, Caltech for your junior faculty period. I started there as assistant professor. Right. I was promoted in two years. Right. Yeah. And this is when you worked with Jerry Marston and others? No, no. I worked with Jerry at Berkeley. I was sort of a math student and an engineering science student. I did my PhD in engineering science. Mm -hmm. But I did all the math coursework. I had enough to do a PhD in that, too. Mm -hmm. I knew about Jerry because I had seen his book, Foundations of Mechanics. Mm -hmm. This is when I was still at Pratt, and all. I used to go to... Manhattan on the weekends. I'd come into New York City on the weekends because all my friends were there. I liked bookstores. And I particularly liked Barnes & Noble's when there was one Barnes & Noble's. Oh, that was it the only not, one? Yeah, it was yeah. in Manhattan. And they had a big technical book section. Yeah. So I went there and uh, opened that book, Foundation of Mechanics, something I should know about because yeah. I'm interested in mechanics. Yeah. And, you know, there were things like uh, Klein models. Pictures, and yes. Tangent bundles yes. and Lee Sorry. groups. Yes. And, all. <laughs> and I was thinking... What is this uh -huh, stuff, uh -huh, you know? Yeah. It, it had a lot of style, the book, because Jerry had a lot of style. It was just intriguing. And then when I went to Berkeley, who's on the faculty, but Jerry Marsland, the math faculty. Then I remember at one point he posted a, the way he used to describe the courses, is they would put like an announcement in a written description and they'd put it on the wall. You know, they'd just pin it to the wall in this area in the math building. So I went in there and it was this description of global analysis, which was hot at the time, the generalization of linear function spaces like Bonnock spaces and Hilbert spaces to manifolds, infinite dimensional manifolds, which would be the spaces that would be relevant to nonlinear PDEs. And that was a hot topic there. It kind of fizzled because it's so damn hard, nobody could ever get any results, you know. But anyway, it was going to be global analysis as applied to fluid dynamics and elasticity. Okay. So I read this thing. It's a paragraph on fluid dynamics. Jerry had written this really great paper with Eben, the Eben-Marsden paper. What they did is they used geometric methods. This was one of the big successes of global analysis in the early days. They used purely geometric methods to show the existence of solutions of the Euler equations. And Jerry got a lot of, I think, accolades for that. So that was great. And then they had something about elasticity. What was written about the nonlinear elasticity was a little bit muddled. So I went to see Jerry about the course. I had already taken the graduate differential geometry sequence there, differential manifolds. Okay. And, uh, and I had taken so nonlinear continuum mechanics yeah. by Green, by Nagdi, by Carl Pista, Kobe Lubliner. I had a lot of mechanics mm -hmm. under my belt. In wow. 
And so I talked to Jerry, and I learned a lot about Jerry. Jerry was a fearless researcher. He would dive into any swimming pool called research, you okay. know. So I said, oh, I'm really interested. And he, oh, yeah, okay, good. And he said, um, you know, I said, but I couldn't quite comprehend what, how, what you're going to do in, a, in elasticity. He says, yeah. well, I, he says, I don't know anything about elasticity. <laughs> but I heard somebody said maybe you could do something uh, there. Uh, so that was Jerry. Uh, uh, He'd write a course on it. Uh, He'd learn in the, the best process. Way to learn, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, well, I said, I could fill that in for you. I could, I could teach you continuum mechanics and elasticity. Wow. And he said, deal, you take the course, you write up something on continuum mechanics and elasticity, but in the language of uh, differential manifolds and modern geometry yeah. and analysis. And I'm sorry, but is this while you're a PhD student? Or yeah, I was oh, a PhD uh, student. Okay. So we wrote that up. That is was this the, is the same gumption as when you said yes to your interviewer? Yeah. About, well, no, but I, I knew I could do that. Well, I mean, that's but I, already, yeah. I, I was already thinking about pulling these things together yes, myself because right, right. it seemed to me when I was learning you know, modern differential geometry, it was to me, this is the language of mechanics. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is another theme. It is a theme throughout my life. Geometry and mechanics, whether it's theoretical so or computational, these things have got to be one subject, you know. Jerry said, well, why don't you just write up something every week about this and try to put it in our language and all this kind of stuff, the math language. And I said, okay. So I did it. And that was the, that was the notes that began the book. Then later on, we co-taught a course, right. which was kind of an interesting course because it was so advanced on so many different levels yeah. That the only people that took it were faculty. I was going to ask docs. how many people came to this. About course, fifteen so people. That's that quite taught, a large yeah, yeah, but they were all Senior, pretty yeah. well-known people yeah. and very, very uh, bright uh, PhDs. Does this happen these days that you have but courses no, where faculty you know, start attending? That was that was the wonderful thing about Berkeley. Yeah. Great courses I took from like Steve Smale. I also audited from him the whole graduate sequence and differential manifolds and all. And the way he taught it, he said, he says, I'm not much for just covering all the bases. He said, I want to solve a problem. That will define my trajectory through this subject. And what I will teach is the tools that I'm using on the way to solving my yeah. problem. And that's the way he taught the yeah. course. Which means you could take the same course with two different people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and actually... Uh, attend the course numerous times and and, yeah, and, and do yeah, so voluntarily, sure. yeah, even well, if you didn't get credit for it, right? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I did. Yeah, yeah. Right. There were a lot of courses in Berkeley like that, in particular in math. It was just the culture of that department, and I think Jerry epitomized that. You know? You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Review's audio interview from June 18, 2014, with Thomas Hughes, Professor of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. Why did you form a company? Well, I was, I was director of Mark at the time. Yes. The reason I was kind of brought in is that company was convulsing, and there was a lot of internal strife. So I was brought in as sort of uh, someone who was prominent in the technology, at least, because mm -hmm. they lost their main people at the time. They had still had important people who could do something mm -hmm. that were there, but they had lost, I'd say, the figureheads. You know, uh, they they offered me the presidency of the firm, but I it didn't seem that attractive to me. I brought in uh, some people, some of my friends in the, in the valley that you know, knew a lot about starting companies all, and they said like, "Don't do it, and uh, start your own company." You oh. know, if you want to do something like yeah. this, 
So we did that. And had, so prior to that, you had not considered the possibility of. It was it, it, uh, well, if you're at Stanford in mm. the Silicon Valley, I mean, That's this is a contagious disease. All the time. <laughs> you know, it's, everybody has the infection. Uh-huh, it's, uh-huh. It's, yeah, it's just a matter of time, I, I suppose. See, so. I, I had some. This triggered to, it. Yeah, we had very good technology, and what we decided to pioneer is fluid structure. Mm-hmm. So we, our solver was completely integrated fluids and. Was that a product was, or was it the consulting that no, was No, it was a product. Was and it, and it, was a, it was a multi-physics mm-hmm. solver. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem at the time is you didn't have uh, you didn't have enough people that wanted to buy multi-physics technology. Yeah. You know, was, somebody had to create the market. And, and I guess yeah. our marketing effort was to create the awareness out there. Right. But there were, were not enough customers Same issue with a compelling narrative, right? Yeah, exactly. Before, so that was, it was a tough sell. So we kind of just... Coasted along, yeah. we got up into the 40s with people, and uh-huh. the valley was booming. Hmm. It was very difficult to hold on to employees that ah. were doing, uh, you know, CFD and stuff like that in a company that was just kind of not really growing very right. rapidly, yeah. and uh, compete with all the opportunities in the valley because this was the dot com bubble, and we shared space with another company, and this company. People were getting stock options that were not educated like our mm-hmm. guys, mm-hmm. and they were getting, you know, in a year they'd say, "Oh, my 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 stock is now worth, you know, fourteen million dollars or something like that." So they yeah. just started to go through the door and take right. jobs over there, course, work in yeah. QA for yeah. those, you know, some non-technical product, and a lot of them did that, and we sure. lost a lot of people too. Huh. So that was kind of that was the so, idea. So it naturally it was a, came to a point. Yeah, it came to a point we had to unload it, so we did. We sold the technology to Ansys. Did, did you try anything after uh, any sort of major things recently? Then, or well, the only I, you know, I'm a, I'm a stockholder and sort of a low key scientific advisor for mm-hmm. Charlie Taylor's mm-hmm. company, mm-hmm. Uh, Heartflow. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, Chris came to Stanford as head of vascular surgery. He had done a lot of experimental research, you know, making glass models of arteries and mm. stuff like that with engineers mm. and over the years and but he talked the talk you know mm. he could speak speak and interact with engineers you, you mentioned his last name before but Zarens yeah. yes. mm-hmm. and he he came to Stanford and he was interested in meeting the people in fluid mechanics there the flow physics group was famous for physics so it was more like flow in a box but we were solving you know industrial scale problems mm. we had all of the technology to you know build models of very complicated real engineering systems and stuff like that we one of the things we had done at centric is built simulation based design systems <laughs> they were kind of turnkey systems with model development for particular things right. you know like uh, Heating, ventilation, mm-hmm. air conditioning, mm-hmm. and cars and stuff like that. So they could turn the design around every 24 hours, even though they're doing supercomputer CFD calculations. So Chris came, and I actually brought him over to the company at the time, and I wanted to show him something, and I wanted to show him something that looked like an artery. <clears throat> I brought him over, set him down in front of a monitor, and brought up the visualizer. And the only problem I had that was remotely like an artery was the fire hose problem. Mm-hmm. Nice fluid structure interaction. With a free end. Right. With a free end, yeah. you get a hop bifurcation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the fluid's squirting out, you do sure. it at the right speed, yeah, it's yeah. going like this, right. it's squirting all over the place. And he's sitting there like this looking at it, and I'm thinking, I think this is a mistake. Uh, and he's like, this, <laughs> this is the lo- greatest this, thing since this sliced is, cheese. Yeah. This, is looking, <laughs> this is looking now to me like a vascular surgery gone awry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? He doesn't like that blood squirting all over him while <laughs> well. he's doing it. Yeah. And uh, he turned around, right? and this is exactly what he said. He said, Tom, 
this technology is going to revolutionize vascular surgery. I said, Chris, you're my kind of guy. All right. All he needs is a glimpse. Yeah. Well, here we go. Uh-huh. So uh, we, we got together. Charlie was my graduate student. And Charlie met Chris, and that was that. And Chris is a very charismatic guy, and, uh, but he didn't have to be. <laughs> we were all on the same page, you know. So we became uh, a little group, and uh, Charlie uh, started using all of the centric technology and was solving, again, the kind of problems that, uh, the, the kind of thing, experiments that Chris had done. Mm-hmm. We have glass models. There was a lot of data, even CAD files for building mm-hmm. those models so we could build everything and do these and getting wonderful results because we had really good CFD technology. Charlie actually had worked at uh, an industry himself for quite a few years. He had worked at GE Schenectady Research Lab. So he knew about visualization and MRI machines and things like that and all. And so he decided to, he decided to write software to build a geometry from the DICOM files that come out of the MRIs. And once he had that, now we can build a finite element model and do analyses. So the first paper we wrote, the first big paper we wrote was right at the end, patient-specific models, yeah. real patients that yeah. were operated on yeah. at Stanford, oh, yeah. and showing this and how you could virtually implement a bypass graft and mm. try it and see mm-hmm. how it worked mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know something else. And that was the last few pages in the paper, and that was the beginning of really a revolution in cardiovascular modeling. Uh, up to that time, it had been something that engineers did and nobody was really interested in. It was basically a straight, rigid, two-dimensional domain mm-hmm. or a circular arc, mm-hmm. the aortic arch, in two dimensions, mm-hmm. you know, having no resemblance to anything real. Once we had this, though, it was like the light bulbs went off all over the place. Mm-hmm. Chris actually was sort of the moderator of a panel at a meeting of cardiovascular surgeons in San Diego, 1998. And that was the first time it was really shown in the big in a big forum yeah. outside of Stanford. So he had thousands of vascular surgeons, yeah. and uh, he got the previous four presidents of the Society of Vascular Surgery, all really famous guys, and he was the current president mm-hmm. at the time. And he got them to come up on a stage, be trained on monitors with sketch pads to sketch their intervention for a described diagnosis of a patient. And they all did kind of what he thought they'd do because he knows what kind of operations they like. And they yeah. were all different. And, all, and they ran these big simulations uh, that were their the operations, yeah. essentially. And then they would see all of the pressure drops. This was 3D calculations oh. with quite a few vessels. Right. Uh, they would see all the pressure drops. They would see the flow rates everywhere. And immediately these guys are going, I'd like to change the dimension of that graph. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. Because they had the tool. Yeah. They immediately became design engineers. Yeah. So that was a, the, you could see these guys too, at the, 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 the vascular surgeons were coming up and, and they were all saying to a person, if you can do patient specific, that's the key because everybody's different. The geometry is different. The topology is different of blood vessels in people and all. The idea of a simulation or an analysis is, is something that doesn't make any sense to, to certain mm-hmm. people in, mm-hmm. in the medical community. They think yeah. it's a movie, yeah, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, no, no, this is real. Yeah. Well, what does that mean it's real? It's not real. <laughs> when I do surgery, that's real. This yeah. is not yeah. real. No, yeah. no, you don't understand. You know? yeah. <laughs> We're solving the physics of it. No, yeah. They don't get that. You know, it's like it's computer but this, games. This, this brings us back to the topic that we talked about right yeah. before we started, which was uh, this morning's lecture on uncertainty quantification. Yeah. 
uh, and Bayesian techniques and so forth for actually building confidence in the output <laughs> of computational models. Yeah. So while it is true that you yeah. can simulate, you know, the result of a graft or you know some sort of treatment, yeah. and and surgeons can see how it can be yeah. used by not making changes, there's also the confidence that you know it's, not, it's still real. I mean, as you, you, yeah, you, you, exactly. you used the word real a few yeah. seconds ago here. Yeah. So what's your thought? Reality is in the eye of the beholder. I suppose, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even executing the program of uncertainty quantification for engineered devices, which you have a lot of control over, is very, very hard. Or you can measure individual parts. And we so think yeah. we have a lot of control over right. things, but yeah. we, we don't have the control that we think. Mm-hmm. You know, In some sense, the deterministic view of the world that we have used very effectively, it is a bit of a fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, So it's very, very hard there, and it's challenging computationally, and we're at the beginning of that. If you wanted to do the same thing in the cardiovascular business, yeah. you're shaking your head, yeah. and, and you're shaking <laughs> it in the right direction. Yeah, right. You know? I mean, this is... But, but that's part of the communication problem, then, I would think, right? Because if but you, you, Well, you can make an improvement, though. Well, you can give somebody information. It, it is known if you put a graft in at different angles, you're going to get different flow phenomena. It has different implications yeah, qualitative, with regard to yeah. atherosclerosis sure. and everything. Well, you can put numbers on that now. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's interesting to these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they do that. They do some sketches. They know what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They know the aggregate. The details are important, of course, for many things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get aggregate flow correct, but if you don't get the details of the flow correct, you can have focal points of atherosclerosis created by that. Yeah. That's, that's a known that's fact. Known, yeah. yeah, and you can do simple experiments in a week's time and you know, grow a plaque mm-hmm. by having adverse flow. Right. It's a complicated business. Yeah. I, I think at the stage we're at now, I think these, these issues will be present even if it's more lip service than anything else. But I think what you will see is uh, it'll be done in the, the, the traditional medical way where you get tremendous amounts of, st- tremendous amount of statistics mm-hmm. that sort of verify that something is a 55% mm-hmm. correct choice or something like that. Which brings more data. It brings a lot of data in, Which and it, 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 it is the foundation. The, uh, it's the foundation of medicine has really two yeah. foundations to me: it's diagnosis and it's statistics. Mm-hmm. Diagnosis is based on the experience of the person, and statistics is what do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, the statistics very often are it's fifty this way and fifty the other way. So what you want to know as an individual: which of the fifties <laughs> am I in? Yes. You know? But that's where patient-specific modeling comes in. It can come and, and uh, provide some insight into, sure. into that question. So New York, Brooklyn, yeah. California, yeah. Texas. Well, I've lived on uh, the right coast, the left coast, and the middle. Yeah. And uh, three different places. Yeah. All have pluses and minuses. Uh, all interesting places. Very different. It's, it's funny. You know, I was born and raised in New York. And when, when you come from New York City... The view is that's the only place in the world everything is like that famous picture of Manhattan the, and the rest the, of it's the, the Steinberg, country. Yeah. Steinberg uh, cartoon. Yeah, it was exactly. On the, the New York right. cover. Yeah, exactly. This is, you know, you go over to New Jersey, the dinosaurs. There, right. and this, you have this only there's this, this a dot on the West Coast called San Francisco. Oh, right. yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. The vast wasteland there. Yeah. So anyway, um, dragons be here. That's the view. Yeah. So everybody thinks you're crazy if you leave. Uh-huh. And of course, in California. 
uh, everybody thinks everybody in New York is crazy, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> and then coming to the, the one, the, there's one thing the New Yorkers and the Californians agree on. Yeah, Texas. If you're, if you're in Texas, you're crazy. <laughs> you know? Whenever I like give a lecture on the East Coast, I go, how could you be in Texas? And all? Well, the truth is, Austin's a wonderful place. Mm. It's a fantastic city. It's got tremendous amount of cultural activity for the size, especially. Mm. UT is a great university. I've really enjoyed working there. I've enjoyed it more than Stanford. Mm. I, I, I did enjoy Caltech. Mm. Do you still have family back in Brooklyn? No. no there's nobody back in Brooklyn. Huh. Did they leave or, or yeah, sort of they got spread to, to the, the wind? wind yeah, scattered yeah. to the wind. Yeah. The, the American story. I, I have a brother in Connecticut, mm. actually in the up the river from Groton. Did I say Groton before? You did, yeah. Okay. That's Groton. 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 Yeah, so that's okay. where they pronounce it. But yeah. they pronounce the... Thames River, Thames. Okay, well, there you go then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> and the, the families originally uh, arrived in, in the New York area yeah, quite some time that's ago? Right. Yeah, the, well, I mean, my mother's family came in 1847 and yeah. my father's family in the 1890s. There's another interview posted on the podcast with Avram Bar Cohen, who also grew up in the Brooklyn area, yeah. and who played soccer in the various junior leagues there, and eventually I did too, became yeah. professional. Did you? Okay, yeah. which team did you play for? I well, I played at Brooklyn Tech. All the clubs were at the time I was there were ethnic clubs. That's right. That's yeah. what he told me as well. I yeah. played for Segura, which was a Spanish team. I played for uh, Felsen, which was a German team. Huh. He played for the Danish something, right? Yeah. Well, we, we used to call you know we we would refer to the teams not by their names but by you know the Ukrainians. Yeah, and yes, the, yes. Greeks. So did you play around? You, you wouldn't know. I don't, I don't remember now. Yeah. There was a Norwegian team in Bay Ridge in uh, the, the Brooklyn Tech Varsity. The club team we played for, I guess it was our, the end of our junior year in the spring, uh, about half of us played on Segura mm. and about half played on the Norwegian team. Mm. And we we came to the championship together. Oh, okay. Together. Oh, okay. And all the, all the defenders were on <laughs> that team. Although some of the older guys they had they actually going to graduate were also from also tech guys were on it. And uh, we played them, and they beat us two zeros. <laughs> wow, you still remember this? My gosh, yeah. this is from like well, five fifteen. I remember the last game I played at Brooklyn Tech. Oh, yeah. when it was the semifinals for the city championship. We lost three to two. I scored both the goals, but uh, I was not the primary goal scorer. But I just could cut through these guys really easily, so I scored the the two goals. But we we lost. Are you, we lost are you still following the soccer? In Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I took you away from the game I'm missing here. a game. Right okay, well, <laughs> on that note, thank you very much for your time. This has been a delightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Thomas Hughes from the University of Texas at Austin. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.